All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We will be turning back and forth several different places in Hebrews this morning. We are continuing our study of biblical worship and starting into a section that I am very excited about. Uh, this, is, this next section is about corporate worship or the worship of the, the gathered church. And I kind of feel like I've been waiting for us to get to talk about this for years. So I am very glad to get started. And I just want to ask you to not miss any parts of this series. It's summertime. I know you're going to be traveling uh, different times. Uh, but if you can watch live wherever you are, do it. And if you can't, come back and get those recordings. It is really, really essential that our whole church family hear all of this series together um, so please don't don't skip anything, and and also some of the some parts of this series will be in that eleven o'clock Bible study. Um, so stay for that time, or catch up on those recordings if you're if you're out of town. So let's do some just very brief re- review. We have learned so far that worship is the right response of man to God. It is giving to God what He is due, what He is worthy of from His creation. And so that begins with him as creator, because he is creator and we are creation. He is the source of our life and breath and all things. That means that we owe to him a worthy response of of thanks and honor and fear and love because he is creator. In addition to God as creator, there is what we call God's providence. That is his daily working in creation. And that means all of the goodness that we still discover in life. As broken as things are by sin, God has allowed so much goodness to continue, and all of that is a gift of his mercy. So as we see God's providence, we owe to him a response of gratitude and love and thanks. But then most of all, it is the response we owe to God because he is Redeemer. What he has done in sending Jesus as the one payment for our sin, the sacrifice in our place, who died on the cross, then rose again so that we might both be forgiven and receive eternal life and be brought into God's family and this this gathering of worshipers that we're going to talk about uh, today. We respond to what God has done for us through Jesus with repentance, humbling our heart, recognizing our sin before God, faith, believing that Jesus died and rose again, and then giving our whole life to God presenting our whole self to God. So that what, that's what we've learned so far, that worship is the right response of man to God, turning to God through Christ in repentance and faith and giving our whole life to him. And what that means when we then give our whole life to him is that all of life can be worship. It's not the worship part of life and then the rest of life. Everything can be lived unto God. Everything has come from him, Right? And so all of life can be given back to him from the most mundane things of work and parenting to the most grand things we may do together in gathered worship. Every part of life, it can be a response of love and faith back to God. That is so motivating and encouraging. It means that fighting temptation is worship and serving your neighbor is worship and caring for a family member is is worship and faithfully working hard at your job is worship and enduring sickness, and enjoying the beauty of God's creation, and sharing the gospel, and patiently parenting. Every bit of that should be 
worship, when we've given our whole life to God and we're seeking to do everything in a way that points back to our good creator and redeemer and, and honors him. So that's what we've talked about so far. This morning we move from worship in general to corporate worship or the worship of the gathered church. And here's a question for us as we begin talking about this. You, if you have been in church, you have a worship background. Like when you think of gathered worship, you picture something. Maybe you picture this or or something else from, from your church background. So when we come to study gathered worship, how do we prevent ourselves from just importing our experience into the Bible? So that we just kind of find in Scripture what we expect to find because of what we've kind of grown up with in terms of what worship looks like. Because we realize it does look different, right? Different cultures, different countries, even different denominations around the world. Worship doesn't always, gathered worship doesn't always look the same. So how do we not just read our background into the Bible? And so I appreciate this little phrase from Ligon Duncan. The phrase is, the test of the catacombs. And you're probably familiar with the catacombs. They were these underground tombs, mostly, um, just outside the city of Rome, where sometimes Christians gathered to meet when they couldn't gather publicly because of persecution. And so the point is that whatever we say about gathered worship in these next few weeks together as a church, whatever we say here in suburban Southern California in 2023 ought to make sense in the Roman catacombs 2,000 years ago and in Finland today and Argentina and Togo. I'm not saying it will look the same in all those places, but that the Bible principles will make sense in any situation, in any time. Does that make sense? That's how we'll know we're on track. If what we say only makes sense in a commercial tilt-up building in Southern California in 2023, we're just reading what we know about worship into the Bible. But if we see what God really says, it'll, it'll be universal in how it applies to his people. So that's the test of the catacombs. So let's begin with this question. If all of life is worship, what makes gathered worship unique? Because we've emphasized so strongly that all of life is worship, and that raises an interesting point and an interesting question about gathered worship. First of all, the interesting point is this. If all of life is worship, then all of what we do when we gather is worship. There's not the worship part of our gatherings. So take, for example, maybe conversations you had before we even started this morning. Are those worship? You and another believer caring for each other in response to what God has done in saving the two of you, honoring him by your edifying one another, building each other up in the Lord. See, worship started before I ever walked up here this morning, didn't it? Worship started before the music started. The music's ended now, and worship's still going because we are responding to the God who has spoken by listening to his word. We are worshiping. And when the service ends, the worship doesn't end, does it? What happens after the service when we come into prayer meeting? What's prayer? Why would we pray? It is a response to the God who, one, has called us to prayer, promised us that he, that he will hear us and that he will answer. And so we come and pray and it's worship. Everything we do as a church family is worship, not just some part of it. So in your notes, you could draw a big circle. 
Well, not that big because your notes aren't that big, but you know what I'm saying. You could draw a big circle and then draw a smaller circle inside the big circle. And then label the big circle whole life worship. All of life is worship. And then label the smaller circle inside of that gathered worship. If you've got a big circle that's whole life worship, you've got a smaller circle that's gathered worship. Because what we do here is just part of our whole life of worship. But then some people say, ah, well, if all of life is worship, then I can just worship on my own. and I don't need to worry about church anymore. Or some people say, what I need is good preaching. Well, good preaching is available online. So I'll just stay home and watch great preaching online and worship at home because all of life's worship and I can just do it on my own. Or there are people who want to hear good Bible preaching in person. So they come for the sermon. And as soon as the sermon ends, they're gone. And you don't see them anymore. That's all they think they need from church. And that's all they think the church needs from them. None of that is biblical thinking. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10 at verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord when God brings his final plans to earth and carries out his final purposes. So it says, don't neglect to meet together. Why? Well, hopefully that'll become clear over the next few weeks, but here's just a quick four brief reasons that we'll talk about more. Number one, there are unique instructions from God about what to do when we gather. It's true that God says, make your whole life to be worship, but God also gives instructions about what his people are supposed to do when, when they gather. There are unique instructions from God. Number two, there is unique importance to what we do when we gather. Certain things are true when we gather that aren't true anywhere else or any other time. But as we'll see, and also the challenge is I can't get ahead of myself here too much because this stuff's coming in the future weeks. But what we're going to see is that certain aspects of worship can happen when we gather that can't happen in any other way. So number two, there is unique importance to what we do when we gather. Number three, there is unique glory to God when we gather. All of life should glorify God, yes. But there are also some unique ways in which God can be glorified when his people gather. More on that later. And number four, there is unique benefit for the rest of our life of worship. So why do we gather Why is gathered worship uniquely important? Because there are unique instructions from God, unique importance, unique glory, and unique benefits. So what does number four mean? Gathered worship uniquely strengthens you for the rest of your life of worship. 
Since all of life should be worship, that means that when we gather, we are coming out of a week of worship and going into a week of worship. And we need the gathered worship to strengthen us, convict us, comfort us, excite us, prepare us to go back to our homes, to go back out into the world ready to worship. And I want to show you this right here in Hebrews chapter 10. We just read verses 24 and 25 about not neglecting to meet together, but there's a really cool connection between these verses and worship. So look in your Bible, Hebrews 10 verse 24. What's the first word in Hebrews 10 verse 24? And, right? And let us. And notice that verse 23 begins with the words, let us. And verse 22 starts with the words, let us. Okay, so actually verses 24 and 25 are part of this paragraph that begins in verse 19. It all flows right together. And verses 19 through 22 are a marvelous call to worship, which we studied. So the command to not neglect meeting together is actually part of a call to worship. Let's read it. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's one of the great calls to worship in all of Scripture. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you could read verses 19 through 22 and that call to worship, and you could understand that individually. And that's true. I have been saved. Jesus is my great high priest. I can draw near to God. That's true. But the paragraph doesn't read like that. It says, verse 19, brothers, we have confidence. Verse 21 refers to the house of God. Verse 22, let us. Those, are, those of us who are in the household of God, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And so verse 24, let us consider how to stir one, up one another. And if we need to be doing all that, verse 25, we can't be neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So we are whole life worshipers who gather because we need to be stirred up. And because we need to be encouraged. Worshippers come in and worshipers go back out refreshed and prepared. Okay, so we've seen four reasons why gathered worship is uniquely important. Unique instructions, unique importance, unique glory, unique benefit for the rest of our life of worship. So <clears throat> let's spend the rest of our time this morning laying two big foundation pieces. <clears throat> Who and why. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Who gathers for Christian worship? 
Who gathers? And admittedly, we just answered the question, didn't we? Because we just said, who comes in? What did we just say? Who comes in? Worshippers. Worshippers come in and worshipers go back out. So who gathers for Christian worship? The answer is true worshipers. As we saw in John chapter 4, it's people who have been born again so that they can worship in spirit. And it's people who have believed the truth about Jesus so that they can worship in truth. That's who comes to worship. Or as we saw in Hebrews, it's sinners who have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. So who gathers for Christian worship? True worshipers. Hebrews chapter 12. In Bible study a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. Those verses describe God's redeemed people as a worshiping assembly around the throne in heaven. Even while we're still living here on earth, in God's sight, we are already gathered around his heavenly throne as his worshiping family in the kingdom that will last forever. And so based on that, Hebrews 12 verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So based on those verses, who can offer to God acceptable worship? It's those who have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which is referring back to those people who have been brought near to God and are gathered around the heavenly throne of God because Jesus has saved them, redeemed them, and brought them near. That's who can worship. The people who are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's who can come and worship. True worshipers. Now, you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Tim, that's really obvious. (laughs) Worshipers worship. But this has been frequently blurred and really confused. And there are some problems that I want to mention this morning, not to attack our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to try to make sure that we are stay faithful to biblical worship. So, first of all, there is a problem when churches craft worship experiences to appeal to unbelievers. When churches craft worship experiences to appeal to 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 non-Christians. One of the weaknesses of American Christianity for more than 150 years now has been a tendency to pragmatism in evangelism, which means do whatever works to get decisions for Jesus. And worship experiences can be crafted pragmatically to appeal to unbelievers so that they will feel good about Jesus. That is not evangelism. That is manipulation. Secondly, there is a problem when the emotional power of the worship service is strong, but the truths of the gospel are weak. Music is a very powerful tool, and that is not bad. God made it that way, and it is good when it is used appropriately. 
But if you combine very emotionally driven music with very thin gospel, you may well get a large number of people who think they are Christians but don't actually even understand what a Christian is or understand the basics of the gospel. They just feel good about Jesus and like he might be a good addition to their life. Crystal and I, uh, we, we recently watched a, a faith-based movie that had very inspiring music about God and about faith. And I counted the number of times the name of Jesus was mentioned in that movie, and it was zero. Not even his name, much less anything about sin or the cross or the empty tomb. And so you could finish watching that movie and feel very good about God and know nothing about the truth of the gospel or how one comes to God. Sometimes worship services are like that. They feel great, but there's no truth, and that is very damaging. Thirdly, it is a problem when attending a powerful worship experience falsely assures attendees that they are right with God. An unsaved person can feel the intense emotion of a worship service without experiencing conviction of sin and having their eyes open to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if they go away thinking, wow, I, I must be like a person of faith, like I must be okay with God because that felt really good, they might be terribly misled. And then if I, if I shift from some of the problems related to, to non-Christians to, to, to people who may be Christians, the, the fourth point here, there is a problem when churchgoers think that a once-a-week worship experience is church so that they don't understand the meaning of the local church and their responsibilities to it. For the last um, 50 years, uh, American Christianity, American evangelicalism has especially tried to design a Sunday morning experience that is tailored to non-Christians to make them feel very comfortable. Now, the motivation for that is good. The motivation is let's reach people for Jesus. But sometimes what that has meant is no expectations, no pressure, no hard truths, no awkward verses, no long sermons, just lots of positivity and lots of coffee and lots of feel-good worship. Now, I've already noted why I think that's not actually helpful evangelistically, but it's also not helpful for Christians because that can result in Christians thinking that that Sunday morning experience is church. They think that church is a once-a-week inspiring show with free childcare and coffee and donuts. And that is a recipe for spiritual anemia and danger because they're missing so much of what we all need from the body of Christ and what the body of Christ needs from us. So I'm sure more could be added to that list, but I'm just trying to give us some examples of the problems that can develop when there is a misunderstanding of who gathers for Christian worship. Who gathers? True worshipers. Those who are already citizens of heaven gather as an outpost of heaven on earth. Those who are already children of God gather together with the family of God to do what God calls his family to do together. Those who are already part of the body of Christ gather together to be the connected body. Now, 
caveat, we'll come back later and we'll talk about 1 Corinthians 14 and how God might use the gathered worship of the church to save people. That's very important. And you guys already know that we love it when people who aren't Christians or asking questions about Christianity come to our services. We love it. And we love them. And we always seek to explain the gospel and welcome them and let them know we love to have them here. That's, my point is not that we push away non-Christians. We, you guys know we don't do that. My point is that when the church gathers to worship, our goal is not to create a pleasing worship experience for unbelievers because unbelievers cannot worship. They have to repent of their sin, believe that Jesus died and rose again for them, and come to be saved through Christ. Then they can worship. We gather to give God what he deserves from his people, and then we go out into the world with his truth, with his hope, with the good news and call others to come and worship too. All right, that's who gathers for worship. Now, one more big question, why? Why should you gather for Christian worship? And there's, we could answer this so many different ways. Um, I'm just gonna give you two answers for today. Number one, because you must. As we already saw in Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together, even though that's the habit of some. You must gather. A few days ago, uh, I was, the, the, the family vehicles were busy, and so I was on my bike going to, an, going to an appointment with somebody, and I was waiting at an intersection, and these guys pulled up in a car with their windows down, and they were talking very loudly. I could hear them from 25 feet away. And the guy in the passenger seat said to the driver, and I don't know what he was going on to talk about. I just heard his introductory clause, which was, I know you're not a person who lets anybody tell you what to do, but, <laughs> and the light went green and I didn't hear the rest of it. So I don't know what he was going to say next, but I thought, wow, that's an interesting way to start a sentence. And, and a reminder that human beings really don't like to be told what to do. And some people pride themselves on being a person nobody ever tells me what to do. But I am telling you, you must gather for worship. You must. Why? First, you must gather because the church is a gathering. Would you go with me back to Hebrews chapter 2? We're going to look at a couple verses here in just a minute, but let me explain first. Have you ever heard it said that the church is the people? Is that true? Well, if what you mean by that is the church is not the building, then you're absolutely right. And boy, we rejoiced in that truth, didn't we? When for the first 17 years of our church, we had our stuff in a trailer and we set it up every Sunday morning and met at schools. We rejoiced together that the church is the people. But there's an asterisk that needs to be there when we say the church is the people. Because the church isn't just the people, it's the gathered people. The word church, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he used a word, ecclesia, that didn't just mean people. He didn't just say, I will build my people. He said, I will build my church. And that word means people who gather. It could also be translated assembly. Jonathan Lehman uses the illustration of of a sports team. 
He says, if you have a group of athletes who never play together, they aren't a team. They might all play the same sport, but they're not a team unless they actually play together. So Lehman says, quote, an assembly must assemble to be an assembly. By definition, a church has to gather to be a church. Jesus came to save individuals, yes, but then he came to gather those individuals together into an assembly of worshipers. This was foreshadowed in Israel's history because their year was marked by these various festivals that brought them together for worship. We see in several different psalms, they refer to praising God in the congregation. And one of those psalms is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me. The end of Hebrews 2 Verse 9 says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. And then in verse 10, the middle of verse 10, it says that God was bringing many sons to glory. That's why Jesus tasted death, to bring many sons to glory. The end of verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Those sons, those sons and daughters that God is bringing to glory through the death of Jesus, Jesus isn't afraid to view them as his siblings. And then verse 12 says, saying, okay, so it's talking about Jesus saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. There's one of those Old Testament psalms that refers to gathered worship, and here it's put into the mouth of Jesus. Jesus brings us into a family, he makes us brothers, and then we gather together to worship God. Psalm 34, 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 is talking about the church family when it says that we are supposed to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. I mean, it's true individually, but he's talking about the church and, and the word of God like dwelling in this household, filling every corner of it. When Paul talks about various aspects of worship in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about when the whole church comes together. And he gives particular instructions for what to do when the whole church comes together. In Acts, we see examples of them summoning the whole church to gather together. And then there are all sorts of instructions that the New Testament gives to Christians that are only possible in the gathered church. So when Jesus said, I will build my church. He was talking about saving individuals, certainly, but then gathering them together into an assembly that assembles, which is why Hebrews 10 says, don't give in to the temptation to neglect meeting together because Jesus did not save you to stay on your own. Okay, so first you must gather because the church is a gathering. Secondly, you must because you're a part of the heavenly gathering that must be expressed on earth. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews 12. I know we were just there. But back a few pages to Hebrews 12. Back to that passage in Hebrews 12 that pictures this heavenly gathering of worshipers around God's throne. Christians who are still living here on earth, and yet they've been spiritually in Christ, gathered around the throne of God. And here's what I want you to see, Hebrews 12, 
verse 22, he doesn't just say this is something that will be in the future, like when you're in heaven. Look at what it says in verse 22. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, etc. You have come. You are already a citizen of heaven. You have already been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. You already belong near to God in his presence, with his worshipers, in his kingdom. So chapter 12 pictures us as worshipers gathered around God's throne. But then we already saw that back in chapter 10, it tells us not to neglect gathering here on earth. And if we kept reading into chapter 13 in Hebrews, it's very evident that the writer just assumes that those people who were part of that heavenly gathering were also gathering here on earth. Because he talks about, in chapter 13, he talks about brotherly love, about caring for those who are in prison or being mistreated since you're in the body with them too, he says. He talks about sharing what you have. He talks about obeying your leaders in the church and submitting to them. He talks about the way of life that you've observed in your leaders, assuming that they're gathering in church families with leaders whose lives they can watch and learn from. And then he says, if you look at the very end of Hebrews 13, verse 24, he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. So that the assumption that underlines all of Hebrews 13 is that the assembly of God's people who are gathered around his throne in heaven are also expressing that heavenly gathering in earthly gatherings in local churches. Mark Dever calls local churches the outcropping of that heavenly gathering. Another way to say it is this. The heavenly gathering isn't supposed to stay hidden in heaven. It's supposed to be seen in gatherings here on earth of God's worshiping people. So you must gather for for worship because the church is this expression of the heavenly gathering. Thirdly, you must because the church is the temple of God on earth. I've been keeping us in the book of Hebrews this morning, um, but there's another perspective on the temple of God that we need to bring in that, um, from outside of Hebrews. The New Testament looks at the temple of God two different ways. We could really say three different ways, but for our purposes, two different ways this morning. Both are true. It's just like turning the diamond and seeing another facet of it. So here in Hebrews, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the emphasis is on the true heavenly temple. The, the true temple was not that tabernacle on earth, though God mercifully used that, graciously used that to let his people kind of draw near to him and experience genuine uh, covering for their sin. But the author of Hebrews is saying all along, the actual true temple is where God dwells in heaven. And so the point in Hebrews is that Jesus came as the perfect high priest and he entered into the true temple in heaven. He came into the heavenly holy of holies and he had the perfect sacrifice, which was himself offered for our sin. And because of that, Jesus can bring us to God. He can make you part of that heavenly assembly gathered around God's throne. So in Hebrews, we think about the temple of God in heaven and we've been brought there. We belong there because of Jesus. But in the writings of the Apostle Paul, there's another perspective that's also true. And that is that while we're living here on earth as God's redeemed people, his spirit dwells in us. 
And so from that perspective, the church is the temple of God on earth today because the church is the gathering of the people who have God's Spirit living in them. On your notes, look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy, what? Temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can read that same thing in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As we said earlier, the church by definition is a gathering of people. So here in Ephesians, he tells us that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we can't say to God, you know, well, no, I mean, that's, that's neat for some people. Maybe some people need that, but I'm fine on my own. That, that would not be worship, right? That would not be a right response to him. When God says that he is gathering us to be his temple on earth today, our response to that is, God, if that's what you're doing, if you are building your spirit-filled people together into your temple, then boy, I am excited to be part of what you are doing. So we must gather for worship because the church is the temple of God on earth today. And then you must gather for worship because whole life worship is fiercely opposed. And we already talked about that this morning, but just a reminder that worshipers come in and worshipers go back out. And sometimes we come in tired. Sometimes we come in and our faith is really struggling. Sometimes we come in discouraged. Sometimes we come in and we've compromised, we've failed, we've been falling into sin. But then we come in and we gather with God's people and he uses that gathering to renew us, to restore us, to refresh us because Monday's coming. (laughs) Or maybe not even Monday coming, maybe lunch at home with your family is coming. (laughs) And that's a big enough challenge. And the world and the devil and your own flesh are going to fight your whole life worship in every way they can fight it. And so we gather to strengthen us, to renew us, to restore us. In your notes, look at Hebrews chapter 3. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so we've got to gather. Gather. And we must. And I hope you can see, when we say we must gather, that's not in a grudging way. That's not in a forced way. It's just because it's so important, and it's exactly what God calls us to do. So, we must. Number two, why do we gather We gather not just because we must, but because we anticipate the joy. Gathered worship brings God joy. Now, all of worship brings God joy. I get that. Whole life worship brings God joy, yes. But there are some ways in which gathered worship especially pleases God. If you're still in Hebrews 12, look with me at Hebrews 12, verse 2. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? I'm sure we could give several different answers, but here in Hebrews 12, I think the answer is that he was carrying out, we, we saw in Hebrews 2, he was carrying out the Father's plan to bring many sons to glory. He was opening the way for sinners to draw near to God. And then that's pictured here in Hebrews 12, this gathering around the throne of God of these worshipers. So we're going to finally read those verses that I've referred to several times today. And what I want you to see is how Jesus is the reason why those worshipers are there gathered to the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through verse 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's the blood of Christ, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the mediator who makes it possible for us to be there. And Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word. The blood of Abel cried out that Cain was guilty. The blood of Jesus cries out that we are forgiven and that we belong at the throne of God. You see in verse 23, what are we called? We are called the assembly of the firstborn. Isn't that cool? The people who have been gathered to God through Christ. So what joy motivated Jesus to endure the cross? It was the joy of gathering many sons to glory of being the mediator who could redeem these sinners and bring them to God as worshipers. There's a sermon I would recommend that you read or you can read it on the Ligonier website or you can watch it or listen to it. It's by Sinclair Ferguson. It's called The Priority of Worship. The Priority of Worship by Sinclair Ferguson. And the reason why I'm recommending it is because in that sermon, he traces through the Bible the kind of the storyline of God's purpose to redeem this gathering of worshipers. And how that's been exactly what God has been doing all along. That's what the joy was that was set before Jesus. The goal Jesus has in view in his dying and rising and ascending and sending the Holy Spirit and coming again is to create a new assembly. The very assembly of which Hebrews speaks in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus was pursuing the joy of gathering this throng of worshipers around the throne of God. So this week, I just stumbled across this great expression of this in Jeremiah chapter 33. I'm really supposed to be done here soon, huh? I've got to show you Jeremiah 33. So this is a paragraph that is talking about the restoration of the Jewish people to Jerusalem And it's just remarkably parallel to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just read it. It's in your notes, right? Jeremiah 33, 9. And this city, Jerusalem, shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. 
Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. So that is remarkably parallel to Hebrews 12. It pictures God redeeming his people, gathering them back together for his worship. And look at what it says in verse 9. And this city shall be to me a name of joy. Now, the Hebrew there is a little tricky, and Bible scholars discuss exactly is the joy referring to God's joy or the people's joy or the nation's joy. Um, the, the ESV is translating it pretty, quite literally here, and so it seems that this is pretty clearly saying that when God hears the name of that city where his people are gathered to worship him, that to him is a name of joy. It delights his heart to see his gathered people redeemed through the Son. People who were once idolaters headed to eternal separation from God gathered in joyful worship around him. So first, gathered worship brings God joy, but then gathered worship brings you joy. We gather, Hebrews 10, we gather to encourage one another. God created us to want, when we're rejoicing, we want people to rejoice with. When we're sorrowing and weeping, we want people who will weep with us. And, and so it's great to worship the Lord in private. We should. There's also a special joy in gathering to worship him. And the Bible talks about this so many ways. I don't have time to talk about this, but like Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul talks about comprehending the length and breadth and depth of height of Christ's love for you, he says, comprehend it with all the saints as if we can most fully comprehend the love of Christ for us together. Or Colossians 2, when Paul writes about coming to a rich and full understanding of Christ, he says that happens as our hearts are knit together in love, as if we come to know Christ most fully together. Or in Colossians 3.15, when Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, as if we most deeply experience Christ's peace together. Verses like that tell us that there are special joys when we faithfully gather with the people of God. So to use the, the ancient language of Israel's festivals, Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So if we put that in New Testament terms, we would say, let us gather as the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us gather as the house of the Lord, as the earthly outcropping of that heavenly gathering where Jesus has already brought me near to God. So if there isn't any gladness in that for you today, if church, if this is, is, is burdensome or wearying, um, I pray that this series of sermons will help and that God might spark in your heart a joy for what he's doing in his gathered worshipers. If you already find delight in gathering as God's house, as God's temple, then I hope this series is just going to make that joy 
uh, both deeper and broader. And you'll come out of this more eager to be with God's people, giving to him the honor that he deserves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending a great Savior for people who are sinners and idolaters. A great Savior to bring us near to God, to forgive us, to make us your children. You have given us, done everything for us in Christ, and we praise you for him. If there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ as Savior, we pray that you would take these truths and bring them to yourself, that they might humble themselves and repent and believe the good news of Jesus and come to worship you. I pray for those whose hearts are just struggling. Maybe they have been hurt deeply by church before. Maybe they have in other ways drifted away. I pray that you might encourage them, strengthen them, fill them with new joy to want to gather with your children. We are dirty sheep, yes. And so there are challenges when we gather. But help us to see the joy it is for you and what it can mean the joy it can be for us too. So help us as we continue forward that we might learn from your word how we can honor you. Thank you for bringing us into your family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.